we studied about overcoming temptation. The, the name of this uh, series is Developing a Great Life, but it is in fact a study of the book of James, and uh, we believe that James can be studied that way, that uh, there are many things that James says that will help us develop the kind of life that will be beneficial to us, but also pleasing to God. When, when we talked last week in chapter 1 about overcoming temptation, we noted a warning that James gave about being deceived. James 1 verse 16 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And, and that is in context with what precedes that warning, and that is about temptation and who is responsible for that. And uh, James argues that God is not responsible for tempting us. And, and we could be deceived into thinking that God is responsible for tempting us to sin. James says that's not possible. God cannot be tempted. He himself does not tempt. Uh, others might help in that deception by arguing that God is responsible, or we could simply deceive ourselves by creating that image in our own mind. Verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1 give us the true picture of God. He is the source of every good and perfect gift. If, if God is the source of every good and perfect gift, He's certainly not the source of trying to get us to sin. But, but more than just giving us gifts, He makes it possible that we can experience a new birth. Verse 18, of His own will, He brought us forth. He caused us to be born by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Um, we, we are enabled by God to live a new life a life free from the uh, uh, accusation of sin. But, but oh, So he, James is telling us, look at God correctly. Don't look at Him as a tempter. Look at Him as the source of good things. But we not only need to see God correctly, we also need to have a proper attitude toward that which God has communicated through His Word. And we're going to see that in the, the proper response to God's Word in verses 19 through 25. We're going to study those seven verses this morning. And if you have your Bible in front of you, I'd like for you to be looking at it. I'm going to read those verses to begin with. Uh, I'm reading from the New King James Version. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. I think we can divide these seven verses into three parts that will help us to remember what James is writing. And part number one, we would call simply our readiness to respond to the truth. And that's in verses 19 through the beginning of verse 21. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of meat, uh, overflow of wickedness. I, I, obviously, we could learn some lessons, important ones, needed ones, from the general idea of being swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. If we just took those as statements and, and dealt with hearing and, and uh, talking and, and, and anger, uh, we would benefit. But the context, I think, obviously favors the idea of these relating to how we treat God's Word. If you look at the previous verse, uh, before 19, verse 18, he has said of God, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And then the beginning of verse 19, immediately following, says, so then, God brought us forth, so then. The ESV, which some of you use, has know this, know this, based upon God bringing us forth, from the word of truth. And then when you get down to verse 21, uh, he will say, therefore, he said all this, therefore, he'll talk about laying aside, but he'll also say, receive with meekness the implanted word. So the context obviously favors the idea of God's word and how it is accepted by us, how we approach it, uh, whether we receive it or not. James has mentioned already in chapter 1 trials, that is difficulties, things that press upon us, and temptations, things that within us uh, there is that desire to do which we should not do, uh, the temptation to do wrong. How are we going to find help in dealing with these? The, 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 the difficulties of life and the Temptations to sin. How are we going to deal with those? How about God's Word? <laughs> what, is God's Word appropriate, valuable in order to deal with that? Well, I think if you think about these virtues in connection with the way we react to God's Word, you get some idea about how we ought to respond. We ought to be quick Swift, eager to listen to truth. And, and, and that would assume, in order to be swift or 
eager, and we're going to go back hopefully at the end of class to pick up a few other things about this. That's going to assume that we recognize the worth of God's word. That we see it as something that is capable of guiding us. That, that we understand that it is not just good, but necessary if we're going to make it through temptations and trials. We ought to be slow to speak against the truth. You know, people who try to discount the truth that is found in God's Word do not realize often that they become judges of the Word. If you discredit God's Word, you have become a judge of God's Word. And we would have to ask, who gave anyone that right to judge God's Word? to discredit God's Word. And I think this most often happens when people see that the Bible does not condone what they're doing. That's why you would be speaking against the truth. Because the truth, as James will show us, is like a mirror. And we look at it and we see ourselves. If we don't see what we want to see, if we don't like what we see, how do we react? Well, some, rather than submitting to the truth and saying, okay, I recognize by looking at God's Word that I am wrong and I need to change and do something different, instead of doing that, someone wants to simply pick on God's Word. Well, I don't know why God wants me to do that. I can't believe He's asking me to do that. We must be slow to get angry against the truth. Look at verse 20. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's true in a very general sense. You can't be righteous and wrathful at the same time. But in this particular context, you cannot produce the righteousness of God if you get angry at the Word of God. can't do it. Look over at Galatians 4 for just a moment because we usually think of that when we're talking about this. In Galatians 4, if you look at verse 16, listen to what Paul says. He's had, he's had to write some very difficult things to the Galatians. Not all of them have been pleasant. And he says, Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Isn't it sad that someone would consider the Word of God an enemy or those who present it to be enemies when they're telling the truth? doesn't make any sense. You ought to be angry about being told error or falsehood, what is not true, but never angry at the truth. Because Jesus said what? The truth will make you free. That's the only thing that can make you free is the truth. Error can't make you free. Error enslaves. It binds you. It is a tool of the devil. The the Greek word for wrath indicates in humans a sudden outburst of anger. It's It's just kind of an explosion. 
It's not just kind of a seething thing. It's something that reacts strongly and often connected with violence. Now, I said when it's used of humans, because the Bible says that God is also a God of wrath at times, but not like humans. God doesn't simply get stirred up and explode. God's is a controlled anger based upon his character, based upon truth, and based upon the harm that it does to humans. Now this reaction of getting angry with the truth usually comes when, again, when someone sees what he is doing is wrong or what he believes is wrong. I, some of you have experienced exactly what I've experienced. I, I have found it interesting over the years that sometimes when you talk to people and they're listening to you and you're talking about the truth, they're okay for a while until you reach a certain sore spot. And then they get angry. And sometimes angry at you. Because they think you're trying to personally harm them or to discredit them in some way. Truth often hurts if we're doing wrong. Now, I, I thought this as I was contemplating this about the situation in Acts 22. I want you to look there for a moment. If you remember this situation, Paul is speaking in Jerusalem. He's been accosted and accused, and he is speaking in his defense in Acts 22. And, and the, the crowd is already a hostile crowd. They're, they're not Paul's friends. They don't like Paul. But at least to a certain point, they are listening to him. That is, until he tells them that God planned to send him to the Gentiles. Now, here is an audience of Jews, unconverted Jews. They don't like Gentiles. They, are, they have racial problems. They don't like them. And, and to hear that God himself would send a man to help the Gentiles becomes extremely offensive. Look at verse 22 of Acts 22. And they listened to him until this word, you see, just the word Gentiles. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. We ought to kill him for saying that God cares anything about Gentiles. Then notice how irrationally they behave. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust in the air, good sense went out the window, and instead wrath took over. Now, so, so what do we do? Um, well, Incidentally, that didn't prove Paul was wrong. That only proved they were wrong. Again, verse 20, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So what do we do? If we don't, you know, if we 
carefully listen to the truth, if we're eager to listen to it, if we're slow to speak against it, if we don't get angry with it, what do we really do? Well, look at the beginning of verse 21. Therefore, rather than all of this other stuff, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. We need to clean out all of the harmful practices. Get rid of them. And, 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 and in the New Testament, in, in Paul's letters and in the preaching of the apostles, there is a clear mandate that you have to put to death the old man. You cannot continue to live as you've been living if you want to be a Christian. You got to get rid of some things, and, and you will notice that in in some ways this is like planting a garden or preparing a garden. If you don't pay any attention to the condition of the garden and you just start planting indiscriminately without taking care of the soil, getting rid of the weeds, you're not going to have a good uh, uh, success with your garden. Some weeding is always necessary. And, and we cannot properly accept God's word while holding on to sinful practices. It's just not possible. Some people want to do it, can't do it. And James does not mince words here at all. Some things are just filth. Some things are just wickedness. And we have to see them for that. We need to be warned about that. Because we cannot accept what others are doing just because they're doing it. We cannot be accepted by God by doing what others are doing if what others are doing is wrong. Cannot. Can't be drawn into practices that other people readily accept, though they're against the Word of God. But You know, we live in a society, let's face it, we live in a society that is more and more inclined to accept things that God does not accept. And the more our society moves that direction in accepting wrong things, the more it puts us at odds with them. That's not our choice. We're not trying to be at odds with people. But if people are saying what's bad is okay, and God says no it's not, we have no choice. We have to stay on God's side. The, the two ideas that are mentioned here in verse uh, 21, all filthiness, would typically refer to immorality. And we've talked a lot of times before about how the ancient world was really steeped in immorality. It was even a part of a lot of religious practices. Prostitution in the temple at Corinth was a common thing and passed off as worship. But, but sexual immorality was rampant in the first century and rampant in our day. And, and James says you've got to get rid of that. You've got to put that away. You can't engage in that. Now, the latter statement, overflow of wickedness, overflow of wickedness. The, the, the King James Version of 1611, I think, says superfluity. 
the, the problem with not recognizing what that means is that some have thought, get rid of the worst things. <laughs> get rid of the worst things. The, the superfluous things. You can still have a little bit of this. No, no. Doesn't mean that at all. Whatever remains of wickedness, you get rid of it. Anything that's left over in your life that hasn't been cleared out, you've got to take care of it. It's like this, going back to the illustration of the garden. You don't weed half of the garden and say, okay, I got rid of half of it. It's okay now. No, it's not. Got to get rid of all of it. Well, part two of what James says relates to how we receive the truth. How do we react to it? How do we receive it? And he states it very simply in verse 21, second part of the word. And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What, a, what an important thought this is. And we start with this. We can and should receive and embrace God's word. We can receive it. That, that must mean that there is such a thing as the Word of God. James is saying to receive that Word. Okay. Whose Word? God's Word. Not man's Word. God's Word. And, and, and the Bible is not what it ought to be to many people today because for them it is a helpful book at times. It's a good book. They call it the good book, don't they? But it's really not to them an infallible message. It is not the message that must be obeyed. It's a message that gives you comfort when somebody's dying and can encourage you when you need it, but it is not a guide to life. It must also mean that we are capable of understanding what God wants us to do. How could you receive what you couldn't understand? And James is not suggesting at all, agreeing without understanding, just take it because there it is. No, you take it by understanding what God is saying. And it is to be done, James says, with a humble attitude. When you and I approach the Word of God, we recognize that this is the God's Word. Therefore, it's extremely important. We should approach it reverently, but with humility. Receive with meekness the implanted Word. The ancient world did not generally conceive of the idea of meekness as being a good thing because they felt it was wrong to give in you should be dominant. You should be controlling. You should be aggressive. This word in the original language was often related to the idea of taming an animal, often a horse. You, you, you get a horse to the point that you can put a bit and bridle on it and it will not resist. It's not pushing for its own will. It's submitting to your will. And that was the picture of Jesus. I am meek and lowly, Jesus said. 
He told us, I, I'm meek. I, I, I am not insisting on my own will. I am submitting to the will of the Father. Though he was God himself, as a human coming to this earth, he had to submit. He had to submit because that was the right thing to do, but it was also a pattern for others, for you and me, because we have to submit. And, and no one who is unwilling to humble himself before the Word of God is ever going to get anywhere with God. If you do not say in your mind, God, this is your word, I am humbling myself to your truth, you're not going to get anywhere with God. Incidentally, there is no, I will, but I don't like it in this. <laughs> and and, and th that's not really receiving the word with humility. That's saying, I've got some reservations about this. I'm going to do it, but it's, I'm only going to do it because you're making me do it. That's not humility. The word is compared to seed. The implanted word. Some uh, question the, the word implanted. I, I'm not going to get into the argument about that, but, but I'm going to compare it to seed because I think it is. And, and it needs to enter our hearts the way seed enters the soil. It has to be planted. And the condition of the heart in which it's planted makes a difference. Anybody can hear the word. Doesn't mean everybody's going to receive the word. And in the parable in Luke 8, when Jesus talks about the sower and the soils, he mentions that there are different responses to God's Word. The Word to some is totally unacceptable because they're hard. They don't want to accept it. There are some who accept it and in their energy they embrace it quickly, but they soon fade away. There are others who embrace it temporarily, but the cares of the world come in and like weeds they kill the crop. And then finally, in Luke 8, verse 15, if you'll look. Luke 8, verse 15. But the ones that fell on the good ground, that's the hearts, are those who having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. You and I want to be soil number four, right? We want to be soil number four. We want to receive it and keep it and use it. Now James tells us that the Word, God's Word, is able to save us. Do you see it? Which is able to save your soul. Paul and Peter agreed completely with what James is writing here. Look at Romans 1. We didn't even have to read this. You could quote it. Romans 1.16 
I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. You know, God's word is extremely powerful, and we've known that in our own lives, those of us who are Christians. It has convicted us. It has made us want to submit to God. It's powerful. But you have to be a believer in order for it to be powerful. In other words, you have to, those who believe it, it is powerful. For some, it's not powerful. Look at First Peter, chapter 1. What would Peter say about this idea? Verse 25. Well, actually, let's look at verse 23. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. What is that incorruptible seed? Through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And then in verse 25, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That's why you and I want to embrace it. We want to receive it because it is an enduring word. Now, that doesn't take anything away from believing that God saves us or that the blood of Jesus is necessary for salvation. These are not arguments against each other. God saves us. Jesus saves us, his blood saves us, but the word saves us too. All of them cooperate together because the word creates faith in God, which tells us that we are saved by the blood of Jesus and tells us how we are to respond to that great gift. Then you come to part three the results that we can expect from doing or not doing God's Word. And yes, you can do God's Word. Beginning verse 22. But be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Second time James is going to talk about, in the same context, about being deceptive, deceptive uh, being deceived. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural faith in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. See, James sets out the necessity of doing more than simply hearing the word of God, listening to it. We have to act upon it. And truths that we learn have to be translated into actions of life. Christianity is not just a set of beliefs. It is a life to be lived. A life based upon its beliefs. James again introduces the idea of deception. It's self-deception. And that's the worst kind. That, that is absolutely the worst. You know, it's terrible to be deceived by somebody else. It's worse to be deceived by yourself. To think you're doing something and just make sure that you think that's right, whether it's right or not. And you think about James' illustration. Now, keep in mind that in the ancient world, mirrors were not nearly as good as the mirror you looked in this morning. 
bronze usually, and you could get a reflection from it, and you could obviously see enough to know what you were looking at. But you didn't stand there for long probably and look at yourself. And James says that this person who hears the word and doesn't do it is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and then leaves and forgets what he saw. The, the implication is something needed to be fixed. He's got hair sticking up, you know, something's wrong, got something on his face. He needs to take care of it, but he forgets what he saw. What it's like hearing, he forgets what he heard just like he forgets what he saw. But James says, he who looks into the perfect, now notice, perfect law of liberty. First of all, the Bible does speak of the Christian system being law. Some people get so hung up on the idea of everything being grace that they forget that law still exists. There are things we must do. It is a law, though, of liberty, a law that allows us freedom because we submit to it. Now, there are plenty of laws today. Your, your relationship to the law depends on how you treat the law. If you go against the law, it's not a law of liberty. If you submit to the law, it is a law of liberty. It allows you to do what you need to do freely. But notice looks into the law of liberty and continues in it. Not good enough just to see it and to know it, but to practice it. And is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. First of all, be doers of the work. A doer of the work. The work that God has ordained that we do. There are things in the word that tell us what we should be doing. We have to be doers of that. This one will be blessed in what he does. There is a blessing that comes to the person who hears and acts upon what he hears. We've got just a couple more minutes, a few minutes, but I've got several more things to say kind of going back. But let me recognize if you have something you want to add or say or question. Anybody? And, and the word has to be transplanted. It has to come into our lives and then have an impression in our life. Good idea. Let me, let me mention this. Th these are just some observations I wanted to add. I think this one is important, though you would not necessarily automatically get this from what you read. If we receive, if we must receive the word, and if we must be doers of the word, does it not follow that in order to be saved and to do the word, you must be old enough to receive it and do it. Does that not make sense? 
And, and the reason I'm saying that is this, and not to be cruel, but to be very honest, how can those who claim to save babies by sprinkling them argue that they're doing either of these things? Are they receiving the Word? No, they can't receive it. Are they obeying the Word? No, they can't do that. If that's necessary for salvation, then how can you save babies who can't do either? I was going to save this for a sermon. I'm, I'm going to, I'm, you may hear it again anyway. Uh, and, and sermons about events are not always the best thing. I, I believe in preaching from the Bible, preaching the text. But I, I'm going to say this because it's very important. Thomas Campbell, the father of Alexander Campbell, in the early 1800s was struggling with the idea of the disunity, the, the rancor that existed among religious people. He, he wanted unity badly. And he kept pressing toward that goal. And in the meeting, a, a very historic meeting, Thomas Campbell gave what has become to some of us a very familiar statement. We must speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. He said, only then can we eliminate all of the human opinions and rancor that exist among people of different groups. A man stood up and said, Father Campbell, and he wasn't using it in the term that people use it today, but out of respect for the older man. Father Campbell, if this is true, how can we endorse infant baptism? If we're going to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent and respond, how can we keep on Thomas Campbell was a Presbyterian, and he had practiced and taught and was still teaching infant baptism. The man said, how can we do that? And another man, a good man, jumped up and said, I cannot believe that we would give up what has been so long a tradition for us and is practiced by most of the religious world. Is that the argument you ought to give? What we've always done? What most of the religious world does? Or should we say, what does the Bible say? Listen, my friends, there is even within the churches of Christ today a great movement away from saying, what does the Bible say? We have a large number of people in the church today, I'm convinced, who want us to be like our denominational friends. In fact, if you got the recent Christian Chronicle, it's almost gagging to see the interviews of people who said, we're just a denomination, why don't we admit it? We have argued that we're not, and we will not be if we follow God's word. Denominations are built on not following God's word. We're not built that way. When we give it up, when we give it up, we're no better than anybody else. And we don't deserve the right to even exist if we give up what the Bible speaks. We speak, and where the Bible is silent, we're silent. Now you may hear that again sometimes. There is a danger in hearing the word without acting on what we hear. 
Is it possible that sometimes people get the idea if I just go to church, if I'm there Sunday morning, if I'm there Sunday night, if I'm there Wednesday night, that's what really counts. And I don't minimize attendance. I think you ought to be here as often as you can be here. But if you get the idea that just sitting here and listening to God's Word is enough, you haven't gotten the right idea. We have to embrace what we hear and yield to the truth. You know, we, we don't know how often we're going to have opportunities to act upon what we hear. You have no promise. And, and often the longer we put off doing what we know we should do, the less likely we are we're going to do it. I've told the story before about a man where I first preached. And when I first noticed he was not a member of the church, and when I first noticed how during the invitation he would stand and just hold on to the pew so that he wouldn't move out into the aisle to come give obedience to Christ. You know what? That changed over a period of time. He wasn't holding on to the pew anymore. He was just standing there. Longer likely he was to actually do what he needed to do. Let me say one final thing. We need to think about the importance of good listening. Now, in, in, in ancient times, there was not as much opportunity to read as to hear. A lot, lot of communication was verbal. And Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Matthew 13, 9. Poor listening can make good sermons worthless. If our minds are drifting, if we're not thinking about what's being said. And, and the writer of Hebrews complained that those that were reading that letter originally had become dull of hearing. The word dull literally means no push, no push, no energy in listening, no desire to listen. They just weren't listening anymore. And, 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 and this idea of listening goes beyond just what comes into the ear. Even if you're reading, you ought to be listening to what God says because he's speaking to us. V.E. Howard, a, a preacher of earlier day, had a radio program. And every once in a while, Brother Howard would just stop and he would say, are you listening? The question we need to ask ourselves, are we listening? Are we really hearing God's word? Are we acting upon it? Are we being obedient to it? Thanks for being here this morning.